You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by pastor of Next Generations, Mark Hockley. Well, thank you so much, worship team. That was fantastic. It's saying to Steph earlier, there's nothing more beautiful than watching little kids worship. Right? I think it's one of the most beautiful things this side of heaven is watching kids worship. And so that's beautiful. Thank you to the whole team. All right, we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 25. So you can turn there uh, in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, take one from the seat in front of you. We'd love to give it to you as our gift to you. We want you to have um, God's word to be able to read. Um, God's word has changed our lives and we believe it will change your life as well. Let's pray, and then we will dive into things. God, thank you for um, today. Thank you for a chance to stand here and worship you, God, in freedom. Lord, I thank you for the beauty of watching um, kids worship um, and everybody on up. God, it's beautiful sitting here at the front and just hearing all the voices of people worshiping you, God, this tiny glimpse, Lord, of heaven and what it will be like. We cannot wait for that day when you return. God, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But in the meantime, God, we pray that you would help us here on earth. We pray that you would help us to live obedient and faithful lives, God, that bring glory to your name. Lord, we want to glorify you. God, we want to live with you, um, for you with everything that we've got. Um, God, and I confess that sometimes, Lord, I, I try to do things in my own strength, God, instead of in your strength, and that's wrong. God, I pray that you would help me. God, I pray that you would forgive me. God, help me to live a life um, that is worthy of the gospel. Lord, that is my desire, and that's our desire here at this church. God, and so we, we pray that you would help us, um, Lord, in this endeavor. We pray that you would help us to understand, God, your word today, that it would make sense in our brains. God, that it would change our minds, mold our minds and how we think, God, and that that would change how we live, and we would live for your glory. pray these things in your name. Amen. So we are going to read 1 Samuel chapter 25 together. It's a little bit long, um, but you know what I'm going to tell you. Um, there's nothing better that we can do with our time than read God's word together. And so let's do that this morning. So 1 Samuel 25, starting at verse 1. It says, Samuel died, and all Israel assembled to mourn for him. They buried him by his home in Ramah. Then David went down to the wilderness of Paran. A man named Maon had a business in Carmel. He was a very rich man with 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats and was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The man's name was Nabal and his wife's name Abigail. The woman was intelligent and beautiful, but the man, a Calebite, was harsh and evil in his dealings. When David was in the wilderness, he had heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So David sent 10 young men instructing them, Go up to Carmel, and when you come to Nabal, greet him in my name. Then say this, long life to you, and peace to you, peace to your family, and peace to all that is yours. I hear that you are shearing. When your shepherds were with us, we did not harass them, and nothing of theirs was missing the whole time they were in Carmel. Ask our young men, and they will tell you. So let my young men find favor with you, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have on hand to your servants and to your son David. Then David's young men went and did all these things 
uh, said all these things to Nabal and on David's behalf, and they waited. Nabal asked them and said, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Many slaves these days are running away from their masters. Am I supposed to take my bread, my water, my meat that I butchered for my shears and give them to these men? I don't know where they are from. David's young men retraced their steps. When they returned to him, they reported all these words. He said to his men, all of you put on your swords. So each man put on his sword and David also put on his sword. About 400 men followed David while 200 stayed with the supplies. One of Nabal's young men informed Abigail, Nabal's wife, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed at them. Then the men treated us very well. When we were in the field, we weren't harassed and nothing of ours was missing the whole time we were living among them. They were a wall around us both day and night. The entire time we were with them herding the sheep. Now consider carefully what you should do because there is certain to be trouble for our master and his entire family. He's such a worthless fool. Nobody can talk to him. Abigail hurried, taking 200 loaves of bread, two clay jars of wine, five butchered sheep, a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she said to her male servants, Go ahead of me. I will be right behind you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. As she rode the donkey down a mountain pass, hidden from view, she saw David and his men coming toward her and met them. David had just said, I guarded everything that belonged to this man in the wilderness for nothing. He was not missing anything, yet he paid me back evil for good. May God punish me and do so severely if I let any of his males survive until morning. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off the donkey and knelt down with her face to the ground and paid homage to David. She knelt at his feet and said, The guilt is mine, my lord, but please let your servant speak to you directly. Listen to the words of your servant. My lord should pay no attention to this worthless fool, Nabal, for he lives up to his name. His name means stupid, and stupidity is all he knows. I, your servant, didn't see my lord's young men whom you sent. Now, my lord, as surely as the lord lives and as you yourself live, it is the Lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed and avenging yourself by your own hand. May your enemies and those who intend to harm my Lord be like Nabal. Let this gift your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive your servant's offense for the Lord is certain to make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because he fights the Lord's battles. Throughout your life, may evil not be found in you. Someone is pursuing you and intends to take your life. My Lord's life is tucked safely in the place where the Lord your God protects the living, but he is flinging away your enemies' lives like stones from a sling. When God does for the Lord all the good he promised you and appoints you ruler over Israel, there will not be remorse or troubled conscience for my Lord because of needless bloodshed or my Lord's revenge. When the Lord does good things for my Lord, may you remember me, your servant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you to me today. May your discernment be blessed, and may you be blessed today. You kept me from participating in bloodshed and avenging myself by my own hand. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord God of Israel lives, who prevented me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to me, Nabal wouldn't have had any males left by morning light." Then David accepted what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. See, I have heard what you have said and have granted your request. Then Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was in his house holding a feast fit for a king. Nabal's heart was cheerful, and he was very drunk, so he didn't say anything to him until morning light. 
In the morning when Nabal sobered up, his wife told him about these events. His heart died and became a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal dead. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who championed my cause against Nabal's insults and restrained his servant from doing evil. The Lord brought Nabal's evil deeds back on his own head. Then David sent messengers to speak to Abigail about marrying him. When David's servants came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David sent us to bring you to him as a wife. She stood up and paid homage with her face to the ground and said, Here I am, your servant, a slave, to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Then Abigail got up quickly and with her five female servants accompanying her, rode the donkey following David's messengers. And so she became his wife. David also married Anna Noam of Jezreel, and the two of them became his wives. But Saul sent his daughter Michael, David's wife, to Palti, son of Lashish, who was from Galim. We made it. Good work. I have a question for you. Have you ever been confused by how to study the Bible? Right? Do you ever read a passage like this and go, okay, that was a lot. I have no idea what that means. Why did that thing make the cut? Out of all the things that I've got questions for the Lord about that I don't seem to have answers for, why did this one make the cut? Um, we talked a few weeks ago about the importance of first learning about the character of God as we study God's word and then looking at how to apply that to your life. And so I thought today's text was a really good opportunity for us to walk through and give some examples of what that looks like as you read a passage like this in your own Bible reading time that you would apply some of the things that you would use some of the tools that we do as we look at this passage so that you can start applying this to your own Bible reading. And so here's our outline for this morning. First, we're going to look at the text and we're going to look for the character of God in the text. And then we're going to look to some spiritual application. And this is important, right? Because as we read God's word, we see over and over again in the Bible that God cares about our spiritual well-being even more than our physical well-being. He cares about us. Yes, yes, he does. But more than anything, he cares about the state of your heart. And so we want to look for that. And then we want to look for practical application as well, because this is important, right? We want to live out in obedience. We want to bring glory to God. And so first, let's look for the character of God. We've got a couple examples to show you here. I think one of the things that we see in this text, in this passage, is a stark contrast between God's mercy and patience with David's rashness and his anger. Right? And remember, David, King David, he's like, he's like the top. He's like the best king that Israel ever had. He's the guy that people are looking up to and saying, hey, look, right? I want to be like David. Right? And yet, when, David, uh, when Nabal insults David, what do we see? What's his default? His default is, I'm going to go slaughter everybody. That's his default, right? And so he's angry, he's rash, right? And so if we only read this passage, we can be a little bit confused. We're like, what do I learn about God from David's anger? And what's going on with that? But, right, when we consider the bigger picture of the Bible, right, and contrast this with our story, I think we're going to learn something. So let me show you what I'm talking about. So for example, in the Old Testament, we see God leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. And what does he do? Over and over and over again, God provides for them. Over and over and over again, he tells them, follow me and things will go well for you. Over and over and over again, he says, keep this covenant with me and things will go well for you. And what do they do, right? The vast majority of them, they don't listen. 
And yet as we look at the history of Israel, what we see is the mercy and the patience of God in how he deals with his people, dealing with them much better than they actually deserved. And so what we see in our passage with the mercy and the patience of God is highlighted by what we don't see in David, right? What we don't see in ourselves, but what we do see in God, right? Many of these stories that you read in the Old Testament, right, they're full of a mess, right? They're full of sin and evil and humanity, right? And I think they're in the Bible, at least partially, to demonstrate these things, to create this contrast between how humans deal with things in our sin, and then we see stories and passages of how God deals with things. And so sometimes when you see one of these messy stories that looks like it's not pointing to God, what you can see is it's showing you what we don't see in humanity that we do see in God. But what about the passage itself? Because there's something else that I think that we see here. Maybe you saw it as well. The other thing that we see in this passage is a beautiful illustration of the gospel and the work of Christ in the actions of Abigail, right? In Abigail, we see a wise mediator who charged forward into the face of wrath on behalf of a foolish sinner, Right? And so what's the picture? Who's the ultimate example of that? Right? It's Jesus. We know this. Right? Jesus is our mediator. And who are we in the story? Right? We're the stupid one. Right? We're the foolish sinner. We're Nabal. Right? We're deserving. We're, we're sinners that deserve God's wrath. But in Abigail, we see this beautiful picture of her stepping into the gap right between the wrath and the foolish sinner. She steps into the middle, and what does she say? She says, take the iniquity on me. Put the wrath on me in order that her household would be saved. Brothers and sisters, is this not what Jesus has done for us? So yes, Abigail was wise, right? And we can learn things from this wise woman. We can read articles and put it on pillows. But more importantly, she points us to the one who would ultimately come and be a mediator for us. And that is worthy of praise when we consider what Jesus has done for us. So we see the mercy and the patience of God in this passage, and we see Jesus, a picture of Jesus, as our mediator, and we're reminded of what Jesus did for us. Now let's look at some spiritual application. I'll give you an example from the text. When we talk about spiritual application, um, let's consider this. The anointed king only acts like God's king when reminded of God's word. Did you notice that in the text? The anointed king only acts like God's king Right when reminded of God's word. Let me show you what I'm talking about. If you look at the text, it says, Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, it is the Lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed and avenging yourself by your own hand. May your enemies and those who intend to harm my Lord be like Nabal. Abigail reminded David of God's word. You can see a few times in the text, it talks about how he would have committed this great evil if he would have went through on his plan, right? And so I think what David and Abigail potentially talked about was one of these two verses, or at least she had them in mind. Deuteronomy 32, 35, vengeance and retribution, this is God talking, belong to me. 
In their time, their foot will slip for their day of disaster is near and their doom is coming quickly. Or potentially she was remembering this one. Do not harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbor directly and you will not incur guilt because of him. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Um, we've talked about this before, but I think it bears um, talking about again because it's so important and we have such a hard time with it as humans. Why don't we take revenge as Christians, right? Why do we forgive people even when people won't apologize, right? It's because of two very important truths that we know as Christians, right? Number one, the number one thing, number one outcome that can happen is that sin that has been done against us is covered by the blood of Jesus, right? So either that person who has sinned against you, right? Because we're human, we've sinned against you. I've sinned against you guys. That sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. The other option is maybe they're not a Christian yet, but one day God will save them and that blood and that sin will be covered by the blood of Jesus, just like your sin, just like my sin has been covered by the blood of Jesus. The second option is that God is the one who will deal justly with sin at the end. So here's the second thing, right? So the second thing is that we deal justly um, with by God. And so why um, do we take revenge? Uh, when we try to take revenge, here's what's happening. When we try to take revenge, we are trying to take the place of God, right? That's ultimately what you're doing. When we try to take revenge, we are doing God's job. And God is not okay with that, right? We should not be taking God's place. Look at the other thing that Abigail does to David here in reminding him about, so she reminded him of God's word, but she also reminds David of God's promises. Look at this here in this text. Let this gift your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord is certain to make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because he fights the Lord's battles. Throughout your life, may evil not be found in you. Someone is pursuing you and intends to take your life. My Lord's life is tucked safely in the place where your Lord, the Lord your God, protects the living. But he is flinging away your enemies' like lives like stones from a sling. When the Lord does for my Lord all the good he promised you and appoints you ruler over Israel, there will not be remorse or troubled conscience for my Lord because of needless bloodshed for my Lord's revenge. So you can see at the end there, that would have been the problem, right? And so what does she remind him of originally, right? For the Lord is certain to make a lasting dynasty for my Lord, right? She's reminding him of one of the promises that God gave to David, right? And then see the second one, right? Someone's pursuing you and intends to take your life. She knows about what's going on, right? But my Lord's life is tucked safely in the place where the Lord your God protects the living, right? He's saying, look, I know. She's trying to remind him, look at the promises that God's given you, right? He's going to create this dynasty for you. God is the one who's protecting you. You don't need to take sin into your own hands. Don't take matters into your own hands. It's going to um, inhibit what God's desire is because I know that one day he's going to make you king. I know that one day he wants to make a dynasty in your name. Don't sin against the Lord. Instead, protect... Um, Hold true to God's promises, right? God's going to protect you. God's going to fight for you. And that's what she's trying to remind David of. And then look what he does. 
Look at how he responds. Then David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you to meet me today. May your discernment be blessed and may you be blessed. Today kept me, you kept me from participating in bloodshed and avenging myself by my own hand. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord God of Israel lives, who prevented me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to me, Nabal wouldn't have had any males left by morning light. Then David accepted what she had brought to him and said, go home in peace. See, I have heard what you said and have granted your request. See how David responds, right? But only after he's reminded of the word of God and the promises of God. And this is another reason that us as Christians, we desperately need to read God's word, right? Because we need reminders. We are forgetful people. I'm a forgetful person. How often do we come to our a passage in our Bible reading or in Bible study or a sermon, and we would never say this out loud because this isn't a cool Christian thing to do, but we kind of get a little bit annoyed because we think we already know what's going on, right? And we think that there's nothing else that we could learn. And so maybe, just maybe, we tune out. David's called a man after God's own heart. He was God's chosen king. Do you think he didn't know those verses that we put in the Old Testament? I think most likely he did. I know for sure that he knew the promises of God. And yet in his pride, in his selfishness, and in his anger, he forgot until he was reminded by Abigail. We need these same reminders, Christians, right? Not for when life's going well. We need God's word when life's going well. But when things do not go well, right? We need to have people in our life that will remind us of God's word. We need to know God's word so that we would be reminded of it in the moment, right? And I want you to notice this too. That this is exactly what we're talking about when we talk about learning about the character of God first. God doesn't just say in his word, don't take revenge, right? He could, and that would be a good principle to say, yeah, don't take revenge. But look at what he says. He says, don't take revenge. He says, because I'm the one who will judge sin justly. That's what we learn from the whole of God's word. It's because God is the perfect judge and the right judge and the worthy judge that we are told not to take revenge. And so do you see how the character of God is central to the argument of why we shouldn't take revenge? It's not just thrown out for no reason, but we're given an explanation, right? For the call, for the motivation to listen, for the hope that we have. And it's in the character of God because we trust in God. So God doesn't say, just don't go do these things. But he's saying, look, don't go do these things because I'm going to deal with that. That's who I am, right? Let me deal with that. That's what we want to do these things. Practical application, we've got a few things for you. Number one is this, beware of your anger. We see the anger of David in this text, don't we? We see the anger and the rashness of David. Look at James 1, 19 through 20. It says this, my dear brothers and sisters, understand this, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. The antidote for anger is the truth. And what's the truth according to this text? What does it say up there? Human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness, right? It doesn't lead to God's righteousness. So we need to hear the truth and then we have to have the humility to listen to it. 
Abigail reminded David of the truth of God's word, but he was wise enough to actually listen to it. Are we wise enough to listen to God's word? Right? So we got to know that truth. We got to be wise enough to listen to it. You know, the Holy Spirit, he doesn't take time off, does he? Right? He, he's always at you, right? He's always on board. He doesn't take vacation days every time, right? He's saying, hey, he's trying to guide us to the truth. Guide us to like, guide us to what God wants us to do. Guide us to obedience, right? We need to listen to the Holy Spirit. And we need to listen to people around you, right? When they say, hey, you're off, Right? Do we invite that in the way that we deal with things? Do we invite that in the people that we have around? Are people ready and willing to do that because they know that you're not going to freak out on them, right? Do you have people in your life that are willing to do that for you? Because it starts with you and how you respond to things, right? Number two, let's look at this one. How to live in a challenging marriage, right? We see Abigail living in a very challenging marriage, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, gives some good advice on this. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won over. Uh, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty for a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn them by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Let's start at the top with the wives. He talks to the wives first, and he's talking about um, the subject is husbands who don't obey the word, right? Most likely that is going to mean husbands who are not Christians. Um, and I would argue that I think application-wise, I think it's also possible to, to take some of this application for husbands that also aren't acting like Christians. You may believe that they are a Christian, but they're not acting like Christians, Right? And so this is going to be challenging, isn't it, right? to what he's talking about, right? It's challenging to live with a difficult spouse. In Peter, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, um, he's teaching Christians about living in a hostile world, right? And then he's going to continue in chapter 3 and talks to them about teaching and teaches them about living in a hostile family situation. And so we don't have time to break down all of these points, but I want you to notice the main point. Look at verse 1. What does it say in verse 1? What's the purpose of doing the things that Peter advises the wives with difficult husbands to do? Notice this right there in the text. It says, so that they may be one. That's the goal, right? That's the purpose. So that they may be saved, right? By their conduct, right? That, that, that husband um, who maybe says you might start acting like it again, right? And how will they be won? By the beautiful love of a wife and how she treats her husband when he doesn't deserve it. She's going to get a glimpse of the gospel. And then what's the main point to the husbands? Look at verse 7. It says that husbands are likewise live in an, uh, with your wives in an understanding way. Um, in an understanding way is literally translated as living together according to knowledge. Um, and then the natural question is, 
That's kind of confusing. What knowledge, right? I would argue that simply put, it's the knowledge of God's plans and purposes and goals of marriage, right? To serve and love her as Christ has done for him. And why should a man live this way, even though his wife may not be a believer, it's probably hostile, probably making his life difficult or not acting like one. Notice what it says in the text. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. What does that mean? Right? Because they're in, they, have, um, they are equal in spiritual privilege and eternal importance. Right? Essentially, right, heirs with you of the grace of life, I think you could sum it up by saying they were created in the image of God. I think we have Imago Dei here. Right? And then we see this warning for husbands. Like, if you don't, your prayers will be hindered. And husbands, this is a strong warning for us. Like God is willing to interrupt his relationship with you if you don't treat the one he created the way that he expects, regardless of how they are acting. He puts the responsibility on you. And that's hard. That's challenging to actually live that out, but it's the truth. And so what does this ultimately come down to? Is this, that if you are living as a Christian in a difficult marriage, your difficult marriage is your best opportunity to share Christ with someone. It's your best chance to live the gospel. So do we want to see you serve at church? Yes. Do we want to see you share Christ in the community? Yes, of course. But your best and most important opportunity is to first do this with your spouse, even though it's hard. And if you're sitting here right now telling yourself that, God, I serve you in my church, I serve you in my community, um, but I don't ask me to go serve that person, right? If you're not doing that with your spouse, then you're getting it backwards. And I would encourage you to go and get that right with the Lord. Let's expand things a little bit, some application and say what to, what to do when you don't like your spouse, right? Because uh, many of us can end up in this place, right? maybe for a minute or an hour or a day, right? What do you do? What do you do when you don't like your spouse? When you're with your spouse and you're like, God, this does not feel like a gift right now. What do I do, right? We all have moments in marriage like this. So let's just look at a few things here quickly together. First, pray for yourself to be a better spouse. If you have a disagreement, Right? Fights, disagreements, whatever you call them, um, it's almost negligible that you have 0% responsibility. Right? You're going to have some level of responsibility in that problem. So use this as a chance to pray for yourself first, to recognize it's like a warning sign and say, hey, look, I'm not perfect yet. Right? So pray that God would mold you into the spouse that he wants you to be, that he would show you where you're failing as a wife or as a husband. Number two, pray genuinely for your spouse, right? It's okay to ask God to change things in your spouse, right? This is actually a good thing, right? Many times the best way for your spouse to be sanctified, right? If they're a Christian, right? If not, you're praying that they may be one. But if they are a Christian, you want them to be sanctified. It's a good thing and a right thing to pray for them, right? To pray for them in these things and to ask God to move in their life. But in moments of anger, in moments of conflict, I would encourage you to spend much more time thanking God for your spouse, right? Knowing that they were made in God's image, 
than asking God to change them, right? Because normally those prayers don't come off overly well in those moments, right? And that's going to soften your heart and it's going to help to de-escalate things. Number three, love covers a multitude of sins, right? We could dive deeper into this. It's, it's fascinating to um, talk about. But basically this, this is a little bit more of an avoidance technique, but it's still important. It basically means that you should overlook sins um, against you when possible, right? And always be ready to forgive if it can't be overlooked, right? So you're not picking fights about things that really don't matter, right? One of the things that we see um, in working with marriages is that a lot of us, because um, this can happen to all of us, we, we end up fighting over things that really don't matter. Don't let whether you run the dryer on cheap time or expensive time cause a fight, right? In the grand scheme of things, it's a few cents, right? It's not a big deal. It doesn't matter if you filled up at 146 and you saw gas at 143. That doesn't matter, right? You're only saving a few bucks. That's not worth your relationship, right? So don't pick fights over things that really don't matter. And if something does matter and it needs to be dealt with, then be quick to forgive, quick to work things out. That kind of fits in with this one. Don't let conflict fester, right? You want to deal with it quickly because what happens is if you don't deal with it quickly, the problem becomes bigger and the poison seeps further, right? And you become more invested in your pride and your position that you're right and it becomes harder to humble yourself to go and to deal with the problem. And maybe some of you have recognized this in your own life too, um, but just something I noticed as I was praying about this that God showed me in my life is that it's not healthy to live angry, right? Um, something weird that I've noticed in my life, and maybe some of you have noticed the same, is that this doesn't happen very often, but if I'm prideful and angry and I try to go to bed angry at Maddie, I sleep awful 100% of the time. When we're good, I sleep like a rock, right? But in my pride and my anger, I sleep terrible every single time. It's not healthy to live angry. That's why God wants us to deal with our problems. And then this one. This one might be the most important. I encourage you to differentiate between personality difference, preferences, and sin. These can sometimes be hard things to figure out in marriage, but they are absolutely essential, right? You want to fight sin together as a couple, but don't let personality differences, right, in the way that you view things, in the way that you see things, don't let preferences ruin your relationship or get in there and cause um, opportunities for the devil to get in there. Amy Patrick says this writing on that subject. She says, in terms of personality, I tend to be slower to react, methodical and cautious, I like to think things through before making a decision. Sometimes this is wise and serves our family well. Partnered with my spiritual gifts, my desire and willingness to see how things develop can be an asset. Other times, though, when my primary motivation is fear, my caution and failure to act can be sinful and destructive for myself and those around me. Part of Darren's calling as my husband is to help me discern what's going on in my heart. At times, he definitely prefer that I be eager to jump as he is that I just more naturally act a bit quick, more quickly. It would be easy for him to demand I be more like him and fail to honor this part of how God has wired me. On the other hand, it would also be easy for him to never confront my sinful tendency to act cautiously out of fear. 
In order to love me well, then, he has to be prayerful and discerning, asking good questions and confronting my sin when necessary. He may not always get it exactly right, but he's committed to my spiritual growth and to the process of honoring the way God has made me. Both are important. The reality that our spouses don't always respond the way we would or prefer uh, what we choose doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong or in sin. That said, differences in personality and preferences do not excuse sinful behavior. So if we are to grow in our love and appreciation for our spouse, we must be committed to acknowledging and helping each other with these distinctions. I think this is very important for us to do. And the last one we'll put on the list is live the gospel, right? It's the same call as to live the gospel in your marriage, right? Give your spouse both mercy and grace, just like Jesus has given to you. So what's that? Mercy, right? Don't give them what they do deserve, right? And so what does that mean? That means don't bring the wrath on them even when they deserve it, right? Don't bring the judgment on them even when they deserve it. And give grace, right? Give grace to your spouse because what's grace, right? Grace is you're giving them what they don't deserve. So not only are you not giving them what they do deserve, but you're giving them what they don't deserve, just like Jesus has done for us. So love your spouse like crazy, right? Have sex when they don't deserve it, right? Clean when they don't deserve it. Cook their favorite meal when they don't deserve it. Cut the grass, right? Clean their car when it's a disaster and they really don't deserve it, right? Give them gifts when they don't deserve it. Why? Because this is how God loves us. You might say to me, Mark, my spouse is a pain in the butt. Okay, here's the reality. Guess what? Sometimes you're a pain in God's butt, right? That's the reality of things, right? Maybe your spouse has a hard time asking for forgiveness and that drives you crazy. Oh, wait, just like you do to God a lot of the time when you have trouble confessing your sins and going back to him and asking for forgiveness. Maybe your spouse doesn't appreciate a clean house like you do, right? It's just not up to your standard, and that makes you want to go insane. Here's my question for you. How clean is your spiritual house compared to God's standard of cleanliness, right? When we consider how God treats us we start to realize that how we treat our spouse, um, we should treat them a lot more like God does to us. Maybe your spouse has really hurt you. Maybe they've stabbed you in the back and you feel like it's honestly, it's just too hard, right? Really in the depths of your soul to forgive them. I want you to consider what we do to God on Sundays, right? We come here and we worship and we pray and we say in our heart, God, I'm gonna follow you with everything. I'm gonna stop hurting you. I'm gonna do A and B and I'm going to stop doing C, and then what do we do? We go out into our weeks and months and years, and what do we do over and over and over again? We fail, don't we? I fail. We fail God. We hurt him. We sin against him. Jeremiah 5.2, have you ever noticed this in Jeremiah 5.2? It is a fascinating window into the heart of God. This is God talking. This is what he says in Jeremiah 5.2. He's saying this to the Israelites. He says, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and after worthlessness and became worthless? Is that not heartbreaking to hear God say, what fault did you find in me that I gave you everything, I gave you my covenant and you went after something that was worthless instead? 
what's wrong with me that you would do that? We hurt God when we sin against him. It hurts him. And it hurts just like your spouse has done to you. And yet what does God do despite that pain? He forgives you, right? And I would encourage you to forgive them to the same depths that God has forgiven you. Three, one more practical thing. Never clearly sent. Have you ever struggled with not having a clear direction from God? Right? I think we've all got seasons in our lives where we feel like we're never clearly sent. Maybe you're wrestling with that right now in business right? or in a job. Maybe you're wrestling with this in motherhood or fatherhood or being a grandparent. Right? Maybe you're wrestling with us whether or not to stay, whether or not to move. Right? We all have seasons where we feel like we're just floating and we're not sure which way God wants us to go. Um, and if this is you, I believe that we've got some encouragement for you in our passage. Look at this verse. It's interesting. Then David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you to meet me today. This is interesting because we have no indication from the text that God appeared in any way to Abigail and told her to go. And yet David fairly clearly says he knows that it was God who sent her. Right? It's obvious looking back that God was sovereign and that God was faithful, right? Working to orchestrate things in the way that he did for his purpose, right? And on the human responsibility side, it was Abigail, right? Who was simply acting in wisdom, acting in faith, doing her best to be obedient to God and God blessed her for that. But it can be hard, can't it? So what do you do if you feel stuck right now? A few things. Number one, take comfort right? Take comfort knowing that God is sovereign and in control and he's moving things that you don't yet know about. And I know that's a very easy Christian thing to say, but it's the honest truth. Can you not think back to times in your life where you didn't know what God was doing, where you didn't know what God was up to, and all of a sudden it was boom, and it was there, and it was better than anything you could have dreamed up or imagined, right? Me standing here today was one of those moments for our family. I never would have dreamed of being here, right? And yet God in his goodness, right, orchestrated many different things that I can tell you about sometime and brought us here and we love it. We're so grateful for you as a church family. It's a blessing, right? It was the Lord. It was the Lord. And I can see so many of those things. So take courage and comfort in that. That God is sovereign, he's in control, and he's moving. Number two, be faithful, right? Be faithful where you are right now, where God has placed you. Don't let not knowing exactly what you should do hinder you from being faithful, right? We want to continue to be faithful to God no matter what, right? That's important. It's an important thing to do. Number three, continue to pray, right? It's right and good to seek God's will, right? You might get an obvious answer. You also might not but continue to pray, continue to seek, right? Because when we pray, what do we do? We're showing a dependence on God. We're showing a willingness that we want to do what he wants for our lives and openness to have him lead us, right? Those things are important to always demonstrate to the Lord. And number four, take steps rooted in God's wisdom, right? You want to take steps towards a solution? Hold things lightly, but then test it against God's word as you study yourself and you get advice from others, right? So here's an example. Say you're in a house and you're feeling the squeeze with the kids and you're like, man, maybe we should move to a bigger house, right? Nothing wrong with that, 
right? It, it's, it's a good and right thing to take care of your family and to be wise with those things. But as you wrestle with things and as you, you talk around with people, um, you start to realize that this new house that you wanted um, is going to really squeeze you financially to the point where you can no longer be extremely generous. And you know passages like 2 Corinthians 8 where God calls us to be extremely generous. And so as you weigh things out, as you talk things out, as you weigh them against God's word and the impact that it's going to have on your life, then you start to realize that's probably not a wise path to pursue because it's going to keep me from doing something that God has very clearly laid out in his word. So here's a recap for you of where we were today, right? So we looked at the character of God, reminded that God is merciful and he's patient, right? And we've experienced that and praise God for that, right? We're also reminded of Jesus as our mediator. We are also reminded spiritually that we need to be reminded of God's word and act according to God's word, right? So that means we've got to know God's word. We've got to have people in our life that know God's word and are willing to share that with us. And we need to be people that are open, willing to receive that um, as well. And practically, we want to be aware of our anger, right? Because a lot of us can struggle in this way. Um, it says in First Peter 2, I think, that the passions of our flesh wage war against our soul. Anger is one of those passions of your flesh that will wage war against your soul. You can feel it, can you not? We want to be aware of that anger. We want to live well in our marriages, Right? Some of you live in very difficult marriages, right? And I pray for you. I thank God for you in these things. Let's live well as Christians. I'm not trying to trivialize it. I'm not trying to make it sound easy. Um, but what we've talked about today is the truth, right? And the opportunity that you have, right, to share Christ with your spouse, right? Just as the, the love and the grace that you have received from God. And number three, let's take comfort, right? Even when we don't feel clearly sent, even when we don't really know what God wants us to do, let's be faithful, right? And um, continue to seek the Lord and take steps, right, to move in that direction. And one day he might use you like he did with Abigail. We'll close with this. Let's just, I just want to remind us one more time of Jesus as our mediator. Because it's a beautiful, beautiful picture, right, for Christians, right, for us as Christians. Jesus is that one who stands in the gap as our mediator, right, between a righteous, wrathful God and a sinful humans, right? He's our defense attorney telling the judge that we're innocent because he's already paid the price for your sin. Can you imagine how great that attorney would be, right? You got the attorney that's already paid for the punishment, right? You're only going to find that in one place. There's only one attorney for that. It's Jesus, right? He paid the price for all the times that we don't act according to God's word, even though we know it. He paid the price for our unrighteous anger and our failure to live well in our marriages because we all fail. He paid the price for our pride in believing that we know enough about God or our lack of trust in him despite our circumstances. Our defense attorney paid the price on the cross for the wrong things that we have done against a holy and perfect God in order that we could have a relationship with God forever. Does that not amaze you, church? Does that not make you want to praise him? Does that not make you want to live for him considering what Jesus has done for you? I pray it does. I pray it does. So let's pray all together. God, we pray this, Lord, as a church. God, that this would be our motivation. God, the gospel would be our motivation of what you have done, 
for us, God, in Jesus, that he acts as our mediator, that one day that we can stand before a holy God clothed in righteousness, not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ because of Christ as our mediator. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for what we um, have not received that we deserve, right? Because of the goodness and love of God. And so I pray that you would help us to live, God, as Christians. God, help us to live in these tough situations. Maybe we struggle with anger. Maybe we're struggling in our marriage. God, maybe we're struggling and feeling just so unsure about where you want us to go. God, I pray that we would take comfort, God, in these things um, and look to your truth, God, because your truth is the truth that sets us free. It's the lamp to our path, Lord, and we thank you for that. God, help us as a church to live for you. We wanna glorify you. God, we wanna see your name magnified in Gravenhurst and Muskoka. God, we want you to do things so big we couldn't take credit if we tried. God, would you do that? Um, we thank you, God. We love you in your name. Amen. Thank you all for coming. I'll be up here for prayer if anyone would like prayer. Also, if you're new, um, please come say hi. I'd love to say hi to you. And if you're not new, please come say hi. I also like you too. I would love to say hi to you as well. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.